There is a saying in our field that a diagnostic is defined by a drug. As we start developing more and more of these immune therapies, we will be in a position to say, well, if you have biology X and biology Y, maybe you need to get drug A and drug B. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. In a perfect world, there would be that one magic bullet that everyone has been hoping for that could unlock all the secrets for all kinds of cancer. Sadly, that's not the case. There is no one-size-fits-all for cancer because the disease is complicated and diverse. In much the same way that every person is unique, Tumor cells have their own unique genetic profiles, as well as a unique environment or tissue in which they grow. That makes treating them exceedingly challenging. What comes to mind when you hear the terms personalised medicine? Personalised medicine is tailored to what you need. What can we do best for patients? What she said. <laughs> Targeted medicine. Individualised. As a scientist, I really believe we are living in an exciting time for personalised medicine. Technology is evolving at such a fast pace, and we are learning more and more about the underlying biology of cancer and collecting more and more data. A new and critical component of this understanding includes the emergence of the field of biomarkers. The purpose of this field is to pass out patterns of biology that underlie cancer and its progression. To help us understand biomarkers and the complex data they represent, I'm sitting down with the lead scientist in the field, Pretty Hegday. Welcome, Pretty. Hi, Jane. So let's just jump right into it. What is a biomarker? So a biomarker, you know, very simply put, is a mechanism by which you can determine the state of an individual. You know, a lot of people have hypertension. Blood pressure measurement is a biomarker for hypertension. So it's a readout or a marker of a biological process or a state of a cell or a state of a person at any given time? Right, or a state of disease in an individual. The way we monitor disease over time is by looking at biomarkers. Why have biomarkers become a kind of buzzword in the last decade or so? Right, I think there are two aspects to this. One is technology. Technology has evolved to such an extent that you can really measure multiple parameters from a very limited amount of tissue sample from an individual. You know, when you go to draw blood from at your doctor's office, for example, you get a five mil draw of blood. 50, even 20 years ago, you could perhaps measure a few endpoints. So these might be the simplest biomarkers that we think about, like your cholesterol levels, you go down, you get a blood draw. 
and it gets measured. Right. Today, technology has evolved to a point where you can essentially measure your entire genome from a very small sample of tissue, be it in blood, be it in any tissue, any organ in your body. And the other aspect is really the evolution of computation. There is so much out there in terms of tools available for us to interrogate multiple parameters using very sophisticated computational tools. What kind of data are we talking about here? Because that's a big leap from just drawing a few mils of blood. I'll give you an example of cancer. That's what I do. I essentially look to develop fingerprints of each patient that enters into our clinical trials, right? So the way we do that is we collect tumor tissues from practically every patient that enters into our clinical trials. We collect blood we collect plasma. Essentially, the point of having these collections is that you can always go back and interrogate the fingerprint of that individual. You can look at what are the changes in the genome in these patients that have resulted in them presenting with cancer. You can look- So just, you know, what is the mechanism that's switching that normal cell into something that starts to proliferate out of control and turn cancerous? Exactly. Secondly, we can also look at what the functional consequence of those mutations is. And the, one of the easiest ways by which you can look at it is by looking at these molecules called RNAs, right? These are precursors to proteins, but the RNA fingerprints or RNA profiles give us a sense for the general phenotypic characteristics of these tumors. Because with RNA fingerprints, in addition to the genetic variability in these patients, you get a sense for the composition of the whole tumor. What is the prevalence of immune cells, for example, in the tumor microenvironment? What is the presence of other stromal factors? These, the stroma is a definition for the bed, rather, that the tumor cell creates to reside within an organ. And so, you know, getting a sense for the complexity of that tumor gives us a sense for how do we treat those tumors. It gives us a sense for how do these tumors now start to progress. There's a lot of information that we can get now. So you've hit on this word complexity. And when I think about collecting data, it's the more data you get, the more data you have. It becomes very, very complex. But that's a lot of data, right? How... Beyond the complexities of collecting the data, how are we processing it? And then how do we even ask questions of it? That's a very good question. And for the longest time, this was a big challenge for us, right? Is that we were data rich, but information poor. And yeah. the reason why that we started out in that fashion is because we didn't really have the tools that complemented the data that we were generating. We now have functions called bioinformatics that allows us to take a complex data set and simplify it into what we call gene ontologies, essentially trying to classify hundreds of genes into very simple buckets that will then allow us to make sense in terms of what is the overall biological process that is going on in an individual. Jane. That's Wellington, of course, my producer. Clarify for me, what's bioinformatics? Bioinformatics simply uses computer science, statistics, and mathematics to understand complex biological data. This has spawned a whole new field of research and researchers. So there are two aspects to this, right? So one is to understand the biology. And the second aspect, of course, is as you mentioned, a biomarker is really a marker of the state 
of something you're interrogating, whether it's disease, whether it's treatment. In order for us to understand that second aspect, what you really need is outcomes data. Generally, when patients present with lung cancer for the first time, we have a very good sense based on population data that a patient will live a certain period, okay? It may be five years, it may be seven years. Now, with your treatment, if you start seeing patients living greater than five years, you know that that drug treatment is doing something positive to that patient that is resulting in that increased, what we call, overall survival. Now, that is an endpoint for cancer. What we do with biomarkers is say, what is the biology that is associated with that endpoint that will now help us identify, can we use that biology and try to identify more patients who have that biology and hopefully will thus benefit from that treatment and live longer than a median population. So perhaps there's a predictive quality to this data analysis. And then it's key, and I think this understanding the patients that don't respond as well. That's a very important point because the only way you can make progress here in humans is by understanding it's important to understand who responds, but it's equally important to understand who does not respond from therapy because that allows you to develop next generation drugs or allows you to provide you know, alternative options for these patients. Now, because we collect a lot of this genomic data, like I mentioned to you, uh, whether it's RNA profiles or DNA profiles, this gives us the luxury to address all of these questions. So I find as a scientist, you know, with my own research interest in the cancer space as well, and cancer immunotherapy, is that this is such an exciting time for us back in the lab. Rather than going from, you make an observation in the lab, you come up with a hypothesis, you kind of test it in the real world and you see if it works. It starts to become a much more iterative process now. You're absolutely right, Jane, because what's important in such relationships is what we do in the clinic with respect to biomarkers is associations. All we can do is say, yes, this biology is associated with an endpoint or an outcome. It's really important to go back to the lab and say, is this true? Is this biology really causative? or is it purely associated? That becomes really important to determine how do you now develop drugs based on this information. So this sounds great. <laughs> One can ask unbiased quest you know, questions of the data by just allowing these nodes to kind of form themselves. I'm not a computational <laughs> biologist, I'll put that out straight away. There's so much data, you know, what are the possibilities of kind of uncovering a red herring and going after something that we think is associated but really isn't? This is a worry to the field. When you have a lot of data that you're looking at, you know, biostatisticians will tell you this, the chance of having a false positive is pretty high. One thing that's really important in any experiment that you do is you have to repeat that experiment, which is why we run multiple trials. And once you're able to reproduce your result, it gives you a certain level of confidence that that biology that you're observing is in fact true. So we've been talking about biomarkers in the context of understanding complex biologies and deconvoluting those. Biomarkers are also used for assessing whether a drug is working or not in much more of a diagnostic or pharmacodynamic way. Right. There are three types of biomarkers. One is what you call a prognostic biomarker. A prognostic biomarker essentially tells you if your disease has a good outcome or a bad outcome. If a patient presents with stage two breast cancer. There are certain features that the treating physician can look at and say, 
you know, this is not an aggressive disease versus there are certain features that a doctor might say that, well, this is going to be an aggressive disease. We need to treat you aggressively. Predictive biomarkers are the ones that are predictive for a certain drug treatment. Now, the pharmacodynamic biomarkers are, like you said, the biomarkers that tell you, is this drug working or not, right? So when we start our clinical trials in patients, we take biopsies repeatedly from patients. So for example, we take a biopsy before the patient starts the drug treatment, and then we take a second biopsy a few days, a few weeks, at a certain time point after they've been on therapy. And what we want to do there is based on our preclinical understanding of what the drug is meant to do, we test in humans, does that preclinical biology hold up or not? Does that preclinical mechanism hold up or not? Jane, are biopsies the only way we can get this information? Great question, Wellington. So biopsies are still important to diagnosing disease, but we are trying to move beyond that. We are looking to new technologies to be less invasive and, most importantly, quicker. Just to give you an example, can you imagine if a doctor had a simple blood test to both diagnose and treat cancer? So back to the data collection aspect of this. More and more, you know, I, you see people walking around with Fitbits and there's a capacity to measure analytes and biological parameters in our sweat every five minutes. Where is the field going? It's a great question, Jane. And, you know, we're living in a Google area, you know, era, right? I really view this positively. You know, this is a time now, I think, where we can react rapidly to what we're learning, you know, and I think that the reason why we are able to react rapidly is because we're able to interpret the large amount of data that we're generating rapidly. But in terms of where are we going, I don't know, but it's a good place. <laughs> Do you think we'll finally get to the stage where we carry around our own information, like locked in a credit card or a, you know, plastic around our neck or something, so we can just kind of swipe that in a doctor's office and, you know, all your personalised information will come out in a way that the doctors will really be able to work with. I think we're going to get there and I think our... Um, Sounds the a regulatory, bit magical. The regulatory <laughs> process that's associated with what we do is pretty stringent. That's because if you make a false conclusion, that can have an impact on a person's life. So will we be carrying a card with all of this information? Maybe with some information with respect to your treating physician. Like, for example, I think we will be at a stage where when a patient comes in with cancer, there will be a stage where we can provide molecular fingerprints for patients. And, and those molecular fingerprints will actually allow you to say what is the right treatment option that a patient should be getting based on that molecular fingerprint. So it's kind of fun to sit here and talk about all the things that we can do with it and intellectualise or fantasise about how we're going to use it. But there's a real need now, right? How do you as a scientist or how does the community think about the kind of short-term impact and usability of the data versus the aspirational long-term? The whole idea behind precision medicine or personalised medicine is to tailor therapy for a patient. And the way we can tailor therapy for patients is by really understanding why the patients got that disease in the first place. So for example, a patient walks into the clinic, if they have immune cells in their tumors, you know that these patients are going to respond well to cancer immunotherapies. And this is, I'm just generalizing here. Now, if they're not responding to the cancer immunotherapy, 
why are they not responding? And that is what we can do with the data, is say, going back to understanding what drives resistance to those patients. So there's already a very first simple diagnostic. Do you have immune cells in your tumor or not? Right. And then within those that do, not all of them respond. That's right. Jane, we hear the words personalized medicine and precision medicine quite a bit. What's the difference? Well, I think they're largely interchangeable, Wellington. The key, though, is that we are all trying to develop precise medications for specific individual cancers. So there is a saying in our field that a diagnostic is defined by a drug. You cannot have a diagnostic without a drug. And so what we have right now with the immune therapies, the present immune therapies that we call checkpoint inhibitors, is we know that the presence of immune cells by themselves tends to give you a general sense that a patient will respond to these therapies or not. As we start developing more and more of these immune therapies, we will be in a position to say, well, if you have biology X and biology Y, maybe you need to get drug A and drug B. We're at a very early stage, but a very exciting stage. Very exciting right now. You know what? I want to ask you something else. What I'd love to know, pretty. <laughs> I think the story of how we all get into science is so fascinating. And so I have a very simple question for you. How did you get into science? I've been interested in science ever since I was a really young kid, I'd say nine or 10 years old. and. The, the first memory of science for me really was when I used to go for my yearly checkup to the doctor's office. The ease with which they could predict what was going on with me fascinated me. And that's where my interest really peaked in the question of how do they know? Now, how how does these, the jigsaw puzzle work? How, how do they know? <laughs> and. I made a decision really early on, I'd say, in life that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the sciences. And the paths I've taken over the course of the years have really led me towards where I am today. You know, and I've always wanted to be here. I wasn't really interested in a medical degree per se because it's just too close to a patient and it gets too personal. Doing what I do here in the translational research aspects, I still have that connection with patients but I am a step removed from them and can look at their disease more objectively than perhaps an MD or a doctor can. So and again, use the biomarker data to look for the patterns in, it's looking for the patterns in the disease. It's, it, exactly, the question is why does this patient have cancer? And the second question is how can we treat this patient? And what data can we generate to help us get from why do they have cancer to how do we treat them? The data really lies in these patients. It lies in their tumors. Where do we go next? Yeah, we're at this nexus right now. I can envision a situation in the future, in a not so distant future, where we could potentially have apps that allow us to really self-monitor our disease. Um, Much in the way that the, this kind of technology is growing for more uh, simpler analytes like measuring diabetes and your insulin levels throughout the day. Right. We have the tools and technologies that are now being developed are more non-invasive. So there are blood tests now that allow you to look at your mutation profiles in blood. So if you have a technology that's sensitive enough to detect one molecule of a, a DNA fragment that comes out of the tumor and is circulating in blood, and if your technology is sensitive enough to detect that one molecule, you have a blood test that is akin to measuring insulin levels. 
for diabetics. And that gives you a sense of being in control of your disease. To be in control of what's going on in your body and to feel like you know what's going on with your disease is a really important aspect for patients who are suffering from these diseases. And I think that's where we are going to go in the not very distant future. And so in this way, information is kind of personally empowering as well. At your fingertips. I think one of the really dramatic aspects of the, the biomarker field coupled with therapeutic responses and outcomes is really making sure patients who aren't going to respond don't have to go on drugs unnecessarily. Patients don't have a lot of time. You know, we need to do the best we should do for these patients. And the way we can do that is through, again, understanding their molecular fingerprint. Well, that's a lot of data, and I wish you and the field good luck. Thank you, Jane. This Thanks, was pretty. fun. Well, as usual, another fun session on Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. Thanks for joining me. We'll be back in the bar in a couple of weeks with a new show about clinical trials with my friend, Medad Pasi. In the meantime, keep telling your fellow science fans about us, like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, if you haven't already, subscribe and rank us on iTunes. And now, for me, it's back to the lab. Yeah.